Leadership File on Premier. Welcome to the show that helps you lead better where God has placed you. I'm Andy Peck. There are more than 195,000 registered charities in the UK that raise and spend close to £80 billion a year. Together they employ more than a million staff and so represent a sizeable part of our economy. On the Leadership File we seek to help leaders in the church, charity and commercial worlds and of course have interviewed many from the charity sector. So it is with much interest that I discovered a new book aimed at helping leaders of charities function well. It's entitled Faith, Hope and Charity, colon, the A to Z of governing a charitable organisation. And its author, Paul Martin, joins me this week on The Leadership File. So welcome, Paul. Thank you, Andy. Great to, great to have you. Um, just to say, it's, it's an extraordinary piece of work. Um, around 430 pages covers the basics. What is a charity through to troubleshooting, through to dealing with a kidnap or ransom situation. So congratulations on an amazing piece of work, first of all. You don't have to read it all in one go. You know, it might send you to sleep if you did, but you can dip in and out and find points. Well, of you're, it is it is it's amazing an amazing work. So, I mean, your own background and interest in the charity sector, first of all. Oh well, because I'm an old man, I go back about forty five years in right. the charity sector when uh, the church I was in decided that they wanted to help a local radio station by producing a program, and okay. uh, because I knew how tape machines work. There and uh, relic of bygone eras. I was drafted in to help mm. with that, and I got involved in the radio side and thoroughly enjoyed it. But also, I was asked to be a, a trustee after a few years, so I got to the other side of the table, as it were, to see how the charity worked. And then, when I qualified as a lawyer, I thought, well, actually, this would be a really good sector mm. to concentrate on because I saw many mistakes being made and people didn't know what to do. And, and the old ways of doing things in those days were, weren't really questioned. But now with so much law coming in and regulation, it's important that charity trustees know how to run their work effectively and not break the law. Okay, well done, excellent. And um, I mean, as I intimate, it's a very thorough book looking at, at leading a charity with some 29 sections. So, I mean, our conversation is going to necessarily look at the more big picture issues, but maybe I can ask, how did you decide what to include uh, and were there areas you didn't include in the end? I think what I tried to do was to put together the, the sort of common issues that I'd found through mm. being a lawyer and also still being a trustee of many charities, mm. uh, the common day-to-day -day issues that the questions mm. people were asking. So that was the starting point, mm. really. Um, and, and from there, I sort of built it up. Um, did I miss anything out? Well, I hope nothing of substance. Okay. Yeah, of course, there's some things that, that aren't mm. really relevant. But as far as governing the organisation is mm. concerned, uh, and bearing in mind the law does change, so it might go out of date in a year or two, but substantially it's it's pretty comprehensive, I'd like to think. Okay, splendid, yeah. Um, so what was the, the hardest area to research for you? The whole area of governance and management is the one that I've concentrated on in my practice and in my mind for some years because it's the one that probably causes the most disputes or complaints or regulatory mm. inquiries. You know, how we run our charity. So I intimated a few moments ago the old ways of doing a charity. When I first became a trustee, I think we met once a year with the charity. Mm. You know, the trustees meeting lasted about an hour. And, and nobody bothered about, you know, safeguarding issues or data protection or compliance generally because it was hardly uh, an important subject. The law has therefore changed. And so um, as 
we've gone on as the book was written, uh, I thought, well, we need to concentrate on this governance and management section and actually into it perhaps begin to tease out some of the issues. So in one stage, I kind of depart from the text nature to talk about why leadership fails, why organisations have problems and split uh, and we have disunity in that way. So so those kind of issues I've drawn on my experience both as a trustee mm. and as a lawyer to try and put together, to put down some, some pointers right. that would help people avoid the elephant traps. Sure, sure. Now, um, and we can't, uh, as I say, look at every part of the book, but can you select some sections that refer to easy areas that are easily overlooked by, by charity leaders? So, I mean, there'll be some listening who are, you know, maybe they lead a charity or maybe they're a trustee, but they may be ignorant of parts of the book that you think are important. Well, I hope they'll buy it and read it. But, um, <laughs> one area I think is quite important is the whole area of what I tend to term the founder trustee. Now, if you think of it, a, a charity by its very nature tends to take on work that a risk-averse person wouldn't do. So charities are started by entrepreneurial, creative people who see a need and, and are able to amass some resources, people, money, mm. as the case may be, to go and do something about it. And they're a very special breed. Uh, and, you know, we're very grateful for them because the charity sector mm. is the result of, of people like that. But the entrepreneurial creative uh, abilities that start a charity aren't necessarily those that are right for the charity going forward. Yeah. So these people tend to bring around them a group of trustees who are their friends, who, who are there just to encourage them, pat them on the shoulder and say, mm. you're doing a good work. They're not actually holding the person accountable. They're not asking the critical question. So as the organisation grows, it becomes or can become like a personal fiefdom of the founder trustee okay. who's created in the first place. And if it goes off at a tangent, there's nobody to call it back. And if someone tries, then they're accused usually of being disloyal. And there are problems in the charity as a result. So that is a big area. And, and I would encourage anyone as a trustee or being asked to be a trustee to, to ask themselves, well, who holds the main people accountable in this organization? Mm. Because if there is no accountability, then they may be heading for, uh, towards uh, problems in the future. Okay, so I was I was going to ask you a bit later, but maybe now's the time to to, to cover this because uh, there, there is a, a difference, maybe of opinion. Or I've talked to people who run charities on their relationship with trustees, and they say, well, the charity commission theoretically says one thing, but actually this is how in practice we do things. So who run who technically runs the charity? Is it the trustees or is it the the employed employee of the of the charity. Well, the law would say that the trustees are legally responsible okay. for what goes on in the charity. Oh. They're responsible for making sure the charitable object, the thing it's set up oh. to do, advance education or advance religion, as the case may be, whatever that is, is being achieved. Oh. They're responsible for putting the people in place to do that. Now, if trustees are not going to actually roll their sleeves up and get involved, then they will hire staff or volunteers and empower them to do the work. Oh. But those staff and volunteers are accountable and should report back to the trustees because ultimately when the trustees do their annual return to the Charity Commission and make their public benefit mm. declaration, they're accounting to the Charity Commission and therefore to the general public that that charity has functioned effectively within the law mm. uh, for that particular year. So ultimately it's the trustees, but of course they do empower the staff to, okay. to do the job. And, and obviously if things go really pear-shaped, financially the trustees are liable is that always the case um, well they can be I mean 
depends on the nature of the charity. Mm. If it's uh, an unincorporated charity where you've got three or four trustees who set the charity up, um, they can be liable in their own name. If they're a charitable company or a charitable incorporated organisation, a CIO, then that organisation exists separately from the trustees. So liability uh, can be reduced in that way. Okay. But a charity trustee is ultimately liable. So if something goes wrong, if there's been a gross breach of the trust, mm. then the trustees can still be made personally liable. Right, right, okay. Um, so I, I asked you about the... Um, that the areas are easily overlooked. Um, areas where um, you know, can, can particularly create problems within a charity that maybe you've covered in the book that, that might be worth looking at? Well, I mean, the law is very complex, which is one of the reasons why <laughs> one wrote the book. But but the law changes. So for, we, we have the Charity Commission that are primarily responsible as the, 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 the regulatory body for charities. HMRC are now taking increasing interest in charities to see how they spend their money, whether they're spending their money on things that are exclusively charitable. And Mm. if they're not, then the HMRC can actually levy tax on that element of the expenditure. Um, Then we've got data protection laws that begin to affect charities. There have been two or three uh, recently reported cases where charities have been fined quite a lot of money for data Mm. protection breaches, uh, and and the law is going to tighten considerably on that. The whole area of safeguarding, you know, vulnerable people and uh, young people and adults, uh, and the breaches of that are very serious. Mm. So there's a lot of very complex issues you can then go on to the the general law issues of employment and discrimination. I mean, the law is very wide, Mm. and all of these affect charities. Mm. And almost you could say that the standard of compliance for a charity trustee is higher than perhaps the standard of compliance for a trading company director. Interesting, right. Well, I was going to, I mean, I was going to ask about this, this role of trustees. We've, we've covered a little bit about the, you know, they have a key role within governance. I mean, I've, I've known a number of Christians who've set up charities and, and some of the, the, the conversation about trustees, it, it seems to be almost a bit ad hoc. You mentioned the founders of charities sometimes, um, you know, getting friends around them. And I just wonder whether um, people are always aware of what they're letting themselves in for when they actually become a trustee. <laughs> That's a good question, isn't it? The Charity Commission do provide some some interesting booklets that, that help trustees understand the nature mm. of their work. But I would say, from my experience as a lawyer, that many trustees don't stop and ask those kind of questions. Mm. Well, what is the responsibility? Mm. They, they're either attracted by, oh, it would be good to be on the board of this mm. organisation because it looks good on a CV, or they're friends with the founder or someone mm-hmm. integral and they feel a sense of loyalty to it. But when it goes wrong, or if it goes wrong, that's when trustees begin to say, oh, I didn't realise mm. I would be responsible for that. Mm. And is there a, a reason, I mean, are, are trustees necessary distinct from the staff within a charity? In other words, is it appropriate for a trustee to talk to a staff member about issues that are, you know, to ask them how things are? Because uh, I've, I've been part of various charities and that's never actually happened. I'm not saying it should or shouldn't. I'm just interested. Well, it depends on the size and, mm. and the structure of the organisation. But, I mean, you don't want trustees really getting too involved with the, st- to the staff okay. in the sense that if the staff feel they can always go and talk to a trustee, it circumvents the management okay. structure that may be in place. But on the other hand, if it's a question of, of the managers aren't listening and there's something serious going on, mm. you'd want a member of staff to actually get in touch with 
to the trustee okay. and say, we think you ought to know about something. Well, that's useful. Thank you. Well, you're listening to The Leadership File with me, Andy Peck. I'm joined this week by Paul Martin. Uh, Paul's written this uh, amazing tome called Faith, Hope and Charity, the A to Z of Governing a Charitable Organisation. We'll be back just after this. And welcome back to The Leadership File with me, Andy Peck. I'm joined this week by Paul Martin. Paul's the author of uh, a book, Faith, Hope and Charity, uh, the A to Z of governing a charitable organisation. We were talking before the break a little about uh, that the challenges that we face today <clears throat> and the increasing legislation within charities and the importance of compliance and how this book seeks to uh, shed light on this and uh, it provides something of a dictionary for folk who are seeking to understand uh, where they fit in and how their, their charity works. Um, so reflecting on your own uh, charity uh, work, Paul, you've, uh, what's been the most satisfying involvement that you've had in your sort of decades involved in charities one way or another? I think as a trustee, it would have to be uh, helping set up a, a development uh, charity based in the Middle East, working amongst marginalised mm. uh, kids at risk, marginalised communities, and actually seeing some very special things happen in, 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 in the lives of, of, of particular people, being able to put in place uh, prevention and, 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 and organisations locally that could look after kids at risk mm. and vulnerable people. That, that was very special. I think as a lawyer, when I've, bought, well, I've been involved with client charities, um, I remember one uh, trip I had to go out to, to Central Asia where uh, a particular organisation had lost their prized asset because it had been uh, taken over we would say nationalised, I suppose, uh, and going to negotiate with the government to get it back again, oh, well. which was, was quite something. I've also, um, another one that that stuck in my mind was negotiating on behalf of a charity with uh, the Inland Revenue in the United Kingdom, getting two and a half million pounds back that they Gracious had me. taken away. So <laughs> those kind of things are quite good. But generally speaking, it's it's I get the most buzz out of helping people and organisations do their compliance, do their work well, so that they can go and discharge mm. their charitable object. And to go and sit down with charity leaders and talk and just observe what they're doing and thinking, you're able to concentrate your time in doing your job well because of maybe I've been able to have a little contribution in getting the compliance of the legal side. Oh, oh, well, it's, it's so important and um, trips people up so well, so, uh, so, so often, sadly. So, um, And what have you learned about leadership through your... <laughs> to your work, having observed others and maybe being involved yourself in leading? I think if I was to write a book on leadership, um, <laughs> I, I have the title in my mind, and it's Leadership is Lonely. Oh. I've, 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 I feel that very much, and <clears throat> I have a, an empathy for leaders because actually it's a lonely position. You know? mm. you're, you're there, you're supposed to lead, take people with you, you're the first point of criticism or attack, and very often you don't mm. know what's next and you then you look in the bible and see people like moses great leaders though they were yep. you know they found it pretty lonely at times so running on from that i come back to this theme of leaders need to be accountable not just to keep them on the straight and narrow but to perhaps keep their sanity as well <laughs> and, and if a leader has people around them that that can be objective enough to talk into their lives and <clears> situation not <throat> just how's the job going but how are you how are you bearing up <clears throat> how are you handling this criticism are you getting enough time away to refresh yourself that kind of accountability is very special and i think I've learnt in my leadership the importance of that mm -hmm. because it helps me to be a better leader. Sure, fair enough, yeah. Um, uh, and many assume that, that uh, becoming a charity is the route to take um, you know, when they're setting up a ministry um, because of the gift aid benefits. Can you envisage a situation where a Christian ministry would choose not to set up a charity that, 
you know, and what might they do instead? Um, I hope they wouldn't because mm. it's more than just gift aid. I think the main benefit in my mind of being a charity is the fact that it tells the outside world, your donors, the people you want to support uh, and help, it tells them that you're accountable, that you meet the regulatory mm. standards, that, that each year their money is going to be looked after properly, their staff, their volunteers, etc. Mm. And I think that message is the essence of, of why we have such a vibrant charitable sector here, mm. because the general public will give money because they know that by and large this organisation mm. is going to be reasonably properly run, it's going to be accountable to the Charity Commission, HMRC, Companies House, the case may be. So by setting up other entities or by saying, well, let's not register at all, let's just do it informally, you will not have that and, mm. and the general public will not have that comfort as well. Um, there are other organised, other structures that can be used, charitable incorporated company, a CIC or a benefit society are possible and some organisations use those as particular vehicles for, for their activity but they're still regulated by other bodies if not the Charity Commission. Mm. So I think we, we, we need to embrace the fact that regulation and compliance is good because it's actually going to enable us to be more efficient and give comfort to our stakeholders and our Okay, our so that's helpful. So you're, what you're saying is is actually, you know, people who operate kind of almost like a sole trader in ministry, mm -hmm. people people donate to there. Actually, they'd be wise to to, to move towards a charitable I status think they would, if possible. Because yeah. it only takes one problem, yes. you know, one bad case, yes, and yes. the reputational damage mm. is, is enormous. I mean, it can take a little while, of course, to set a charity up, mm -hmm. time-wise. It can mm. yeah. take over a year, can't it? Well, it shouldn't do. I mean, I, I've done them before in 48 hours at the Charity really? Commission, but it just okay. depends on their work. Oh, I, it's just, I've heard it should, be, from... it should be a question of months rather than years. Okay, oh, no, fair enough. Okay, that's helpful. Um, obviously, charities have, have come under scrutiny in recent years for various reasons. Um, various ones in the press, obviously the press like like to, to jump on certain issues and sometimes that's a little unfair on them um uh, and, and obviously within the within the evangelical christian world there sometimes seems a lot of competition um amongst charities people doing similar kind of things mm. uh, need that be a problem or is that is that actually do you, you know as you as you observe the charity world are you a little concerned i think my concern is that um the competition to raise money from, mm. from the donor base mm. means that uh, perhaps there, there is the temptation to exaggerate the results mm. uh, and over-egg them. Um, and, and because one wants one charity to appear better than the other to, to oh. attract the money. Um, I remember a visit to, to a, a country many years ago um, and to, to, to work with a charity there on a particular issue. And it was a country that was formerly before 1990 you couldn't go to uh, to do the kind of work they were doing and when I was there I found out there were 29 other organizations of a similar nature to my client that was there Precious. all doing the same thing and yes, guess yes. what they were tripping up each other and actually criticizing each other and falling out with each other because they were yeah. all vying to, for, for preeminence so I think the question uh, a lot of charities need to start thinking about in these days is would we be better amalgamating or cooperating with other mm. like-minded organisations to achieve our purpose? Um, there is the saving on money. I know that's not the necessarily mm. the main thing. But there's also the expertise, the pooling of the expertise, mm. uh, the, the, the particular size that can be achieved by amalgamation. Mm. And I think we would be a lot more efficient in the charitable sector 
if we were less inclined to say, this is my work, I want to set it up and do it because I have a particular way of doing it yeah. that nobody else has. You know, it's a bit arrogant to take that view. Yeah, and, and sadly, sometimes people have you know set charities up because they've they've split off from a church, perhaps yeah. because yeah. the church wasn't yeah uh, off off their agenda. So I'm um, I'm I'm 195,000 charities in the UK. I mean, not all are in quotes Christian charities, but yeah. but but some of them will be people who are a bit of became lone rangers uh, perhaps mm -hmm. and have, and therefore mm -hmm. not always healthy um, I think that's right and if you look at some of them they, they perhaps had they were set up for a purpose and mm. they were very successful in achieving mm. that purpose but time has moved on yeah and perhaps someone's still keeping it going because <laughs> they want to keep the memory going but yeah. its best days are behind it and it would be kinder to to amalgamate with a another more vibrant one or close the thing down sure well listeners will be interested i'm sure in, in getting copies of your book uh, paul so uh, faith hope and charity uh, the a to z of governing a charitable organization uh, the publishers malcolm down publishing malcolm mm. down publishing so you get in touch there or um malcolm down publishing they have a website or you can go to online to eden or actually down to your ordinary bookshop, Waterstones or, or what have you, they will all stock it. And so, Paul, um, particular hopes that you have for the book? I think I would want the book to be in as many hands as possible. I've written it as a sort of practical and pragmatic mm. guide. It's not a, a textbook that's dry. I want people to be able to dip into it. And ultimately, I'd like us all, as we run our charitable organisations, to achieve compliance with excellence. Mm. Um, I think God is not honoured when we break the law. Well, amen. Well, absolutely. Well, thank you for um, thank you for writing this book. As I say, it's uh, it's an amazing um, compendium of uh, of all the stuff. I mean, I had you know a lot a lot of it. I had no idea that you know this was this is what <laughs> charity was about. So, if you're listening and you're part of an organisation, uh, a charitable organisation, uh, then you really, you really need, do need to get this book. I'm not uh, Paul's not paying me anything to say that because it is. It needs to be sort of on your bookcase for those times when um, you maybe come across issues that you hadn't been aware of or um, indeed to skim through to, to make sure that you are as a charity complying with all that's uh, required. So thank you, Paul, again. My pleasure. Um, do um, um, log on to Premier's own website and you can listen to archive recordings of the Leadership Farm. Uh, go to the On Demand section and um, uh, you can listen there for a month and it goes to iTunes, which uh, um, enables you to download the, the the show on a on a regular basis you can actually uh, click to subscribe and uh, obviously that's encouraging to us uh, that you do so uh, and if you have ideas for um, uh, areas of uh, of leadership that you'd like us to talk to talk about then we uh, are only too pleased to do so or even uh, people to interview uh, many of the topics and uh, guests that i have on the show have come from listeners just like you so I look forward to your company again next sunday at 3 30 thanks for tuning in You've been listening to The Leadership File on Premier. Andy Peck serves as a tutor at CWR, a Christian charity whose courses and publications aim to apply God's word to everyday life. Contact him via email apeck at cwr.org.uk.